Joel chapter 2, and we'll be looking from verse 15 on uh, when we get to it. So, but first, before we get there, I just want to do a bit of a review of where we've been up until now. Um, when you don't preach that often, it's easy to forget uh, where we were last time. If you're anything like me, you are often struggling to remember what was preached last week. So when it's months earlier, it can be a bit tricky. So I feel like I need to get my lolly jar out because this is what I do with my Sunday school class each week to help them remember. And it seems to help uh, the kids remember stuff when there's lollies on the line. All of a sudden, when you pull the lolly jar out, there's a lot more hands go up. And But uh, I've left that down the back, unfortunately. So, uh, and I won't, I won't ask questions. But as a review, Joel chapter one, uh, is about the present distress that's happening in Judah at the time. They were in the middle of one of the judgments of what we've called the Day of the Lord or what is called the Day of the Lord. And it was a locust plague. The land was in dire uh, trouble. This plague had come through and pretty much stripped everything uh, in the way of food. Of uh, It talks about there was no wine left. There was no uh, oil the, uh, the cattle, there was uh, so bad there was nothing left to offer uh, for the priests. There were fires, there were droughts. There were, it was a really bad way uh, for the land of Judah. And this was all because they'd forsaken the Lord. And this was part of the day of the Lord, the Lord's judgment. Chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 11, deal with uh, a future distress that the Lord was going to bring upon them. And that if they didn't repent after this current, the current distress that they were in, there was going to be a future problem. And this was going to be much worse than the first one. It was going to be the day of the Lord just on steroids or, or ramped up significantly. Um, it was going to be a horrible time. Uh, if you have a look at Joel chapter 2, verse 11, it says, The Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executeth his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? Joel finishes uh, describing these two events, one present, one that was future, and says, when God starts judging you, you can't get out of it. Who can abide God's judgment? No one can. But he goes on, and we looked at this last time, that there was a way out of these, and that was to repent. And we saw that Israel's problem was that, or Judah's problem was that they had not fully committed to the Lord and that they were serving themselves and, and they'd, they'd weaved other gods and other, other uh, religions into the, the uh, worship of Jehovah. And that's why God was upset. And he called them to repent, to turn around and to make it a proper repentance not a fake one it says there in verse 12 uh, verse 13 to rend your heart and not your garments for too long the lord had seen their hypocritical uh repent uh, efforts of repentance and he was sick of it and he wanted them to repent their hearts to the lord and we saw that ultimately it was actually god's goodness and god's character of grace and of mercy in verse 13, it says there, And rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. It was actually God's character, God's kindness, God's merciful and good character that would lead them to repentance, and that he would stave off this, uh, this horrible future day of the Lord event if they were to repent. 
And that's where we left it last time. And this time we'll have a look at what I've called the, the day of the Lord or, and uh, sound the alarm national repentance. Let's pray and then we'll get in and have a look at it. Lord, we thank you uh, for the day so far and, and uh, Lord, the, the good time that was had in your house this morning and, and uh, the, the look at, uh, Lord, the doctrine of propitiation. And we thank you for the mercy seat that we can, uh, Lord, uh, be made clean uh, through the offering of your son, dear Lord. Uh, we pray now that you will uh, bless our time this evening. Help us to focus on your word for just a little longer. May we learn something. May we be drawn closer to you. Convict us if we need. Bless us if we need. And uh, may we, Lord, leave closer than when we arrived. Lord, use me. Speak through me. Uh, Lord, use uh, may, may we see Christ and your heart uh, through the message this evening. We pray that you'll bless our time now in your precious name. Amen. My first point this evening is blow the trumpet, blow the trumpet. Uh, Joel chapter 2 verse 15 says, Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breasts, and let the bridegroom go forth out of his chamber, uh, forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. After calling for personal repentance, Joel continues and calls makes a call for national repentance. Now, we know that sin is committed on an individual basis. We know that individually, uh, those of Judah chose to follow others than God. They chose to serve, mix their other religions in with God. But as a nation, it had all like it spread and the whole nation was in sin. We saw this uh, in the wilderness when uh, they turned and served uh, the golden calf while Moses was up on, on the mount and that the whole nation had to repent. It's a bit like uh, a sporting team who, I don't know if you, I'm sure you've all seen this, where a group on a sporting team goes out and they, uh, they do something really stupid and they, and they get in trouble. Now, individually, there were certain players who did it. And they're, they're brought before the, the governing body of the sport or whatever it is, and, and they're charged with bringing the game into disrepute, and that they've, they've, they've messed up. But often when it's a group of players, the whole team, the whole management of the team, and, and everyone is brought before the governing bodies to say, hey, you as a team have a culture problem here. There's something going on that's wrong in this whole, whole place, and you need to fix it as a group. And that is what the idea here is here, that... Just because there was personal sin that was a problem, it affected the whole nation. And they needed together and fix this. And so he starts out in chapter 2, verse 15, with blow the trumpet in Zion. Now, back in chapter 2, verse 1, it says the same thing. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm in my holy mountain. The trumpets in those days were used for multiple things. Sometimes they were used in war. And in time of danger, that the, the trumpets were used to uh, sound an alarm that there was something bad about to happen, that it, people needed to prepare. But in this regard, it's a little bit different. Numbers chapter 10, verse 2, I'll read it, uh, read it to you. It says, Make thee two trumpets of silver, of a, piece of, uh, of a whole piece shalt thou make them, that thou mayest use them for the calling of the assembly and for the journeyings of the camps. And when they shall blow them, all the assembly shall assemble themselves to thee at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. See, it was not unusual for Israel to hear trumpets. 
And it was not unusual for them to be used uh, to bring an assembly, but they were usually used for an important assembly such as this. And so they sounded the... Uh, they were told to sound the alarm, to sanctify a fast, to call a solemn assembly. Now, Pastor Crockett's saving me a bit of work uh, this evening with his message this morning because he's, he spoke about the Day of Atonement and he, he painted the picture of all that goes on there. If you missed that this morning, I encourage you to, to jump online and have a listen to that message. But the Jews had a lot of feasts that they they, uh, they had, whether they were the Passover or the like, and they got together and they had great feasts and, and things together. But for one day of the year, the Day of Atonement, it was a day of fasting and of, of, of solemnness for the because they were going to the Lord for the sins, for their sins. And this was a time not to be feasting and reveling. It was a time to be serious. And so when they heard that they were to sanctify a fast and call a solemn assembly, the Jews would have known exactly what sort of assembly they were coming for. They knew that this was a time of seriousness. This was a time of that God wanted their attention and that a serious uh, assembly was needed to fix the problem. It wasn't going to be a joyous occasion. It wasn't going to be something that they would be celebrating with feasts. No, it was, it was a time of fasting. And they were called together for this assembly. But I want you to notice there in verse seven, uh, 16, who were called. It says, gather the people and sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breasts, and let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Now, it was pretty well understand in those days that when a an assembly was called, it was understood who was allowed, who was expected to come. There were some people who were, were easily excused. But this, such was the seriousness of this, uh, this assembly that uh, Joel outlines everyone who was needed to come. We'll see there it says, uh, it first says, gather the people and sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders. Now, the elders are understood to be, I suppose, those who are of authority, those who are of more age. But I think in this regard, it's actually talking about those who are elder in age. It's not just those who have authority. It's those who are the, the older people, our VIPs, these ones who sometimes might struggle to get to these sort of meetings and assemblies. They were called to come because it was a serious time. It says, gather the children. To bring the children, not just any children, children of all ages, even those who, who are still, the mothers are still feeding. It was important that these ones were to come. And I think the importance here is that if the children come, the mums need to come as well. The children would have come so the mums could be there because it was important for them. It talks about the bridegroom and, and, and the bride. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 5 says, When a man hath taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war, neither shall he be charged with any business, but he shall be free at home one year, and shall cheer up his wife which he hath taken. When you were newly married, you weren't required to come to assemblies. You weren't required to, to be part of the army in their conquest. You were, you're allowed to just stay at home with your wife. Now, I was thinking about this this evening, and uh, I really don't think 
this would go down very well in our, our modern day because I know that after two days of the weekend, my wife's ready to send me back to work. She's sick of me being at home and I don't know how she'd go for a whole year of me hanging around home like a bad smell. But you ask my mother when my father comes home, he's home for a few days and she's ready for him to go back and evangelize. She's, she's ready for him to get back on the road. So I don't know how this would go in our modern day but in Bible times, for one year after they were married, they were allowed to just stay home and be with their, their spouse. But such was the importance of this assembly that no one was exempt. And the idea that Joel is getting at here is that when true repentance is called for, you can't just keep going about your daily life like it's just, a, we'll just keep going and we'll fix it as we go. No, true repentance calls for a ceasing of our usual business until things are right with God. You see, normally a child would be with, it, with its mother. A young child especially, we would expect the mother to be looking after that child. But in this case, it was too serious for that. The mother needed to be there because of the sin of the nation. Normally the bride and the groom would be in their separate chambers or together they needed to be at this assembly because it was serious. True repentance calls for life to be put on hold for a bit until our business with God is sorted. And this was affecting Israel on a national level. So on a national level, they needed to fix it. I think this also shows that sin can affect anyone. The effects of sin... Young and old, men, women and children, they all need to repent. It's not just a single group that's guilty. Everyone is guilty. We know as Pastor Crockett read this morning, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everyone in Israel were guilty of this repentance and needed to repent. And I know maybe you're in that basket. Maybe you're a child. Maybe you're one of our seniors that need to repent you've never committed your life to Christ you know it's never too early and it's never too late to repent of your sin because the Lord's given us that way to get out of punishment for sin we just need to accept it well having called the assembly uh, Joel goes on to describe what the priests were to do and that's in verse 17 it says, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, spare thy people, O Lord. Give not thine heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, where is their God? I think it's interesting, first of all, before we look at what the priests were to do, that the Lord refer, how the Lord refers to them, or how Joel refers to them. It says, let the priests... The, the ministers of the Lord. Joel here, once they got the people together, wanted it to be known that the priests were the spiritual leaders of Israel. And that as the spiritual leaders of Israel, they were the ones that needed to lead the national repentance. Repentance was not just a sin of the people. It was not just something that the people needed to deal with and that the priests could wash their hands and say, no, no, we're, we're, this has got nothing to do with us. It was a sin that affected the whole nation and the priests 
needed to set the example. And I think this is important for us, those of us who might be a spiritual leader, whether you're a pastor or a teacher or a, uh, a leader at one way or a teacher at school or Sunday school, a mum or a dad or, or a leader of your friends group. If you're a spiritual leader to someone, you need to be setting the example of repentance. You need to be setting the example of leading a righteous life. I'm sure you've all seen it time and time again that a leader or a parent is trying to instill a righteous life into the, the, the people they oversee when they have known sin in their life and they're not dealing with it. I've seen people teach forgiveness when they won't forgive others and the list could go on and on and on. But true leaders lead by example. And Joel called upon the leaders of Judah to lead their repentance. Just like you might be a leader of your family, maybe you need to lead the repentance. But he goes on to tell them what to do. He tells them that first they were to get between the porch and the altar. Now, it's a bit hard to explain the situation, but if you know the temple and where the altars were and the like, I believe that they were supposed to get in the porch. Uh, there was altars and I believe they were supposed to get with their backs to the altar, looking to the holiest of all or the holy of holies that Pastor Crockett mentioned this morning, normally where the priest would go in and offer the blood. But because back in Joel uh, 110, uh, well, 9, sorry, they talked about, Joel talked about that there was nothing left for the priest to offer. The priest couldn't offer a sacrifice. So they had to go and beg God for forgiveness without that. And so that's the picture here is that the priests are with their backs to the altar, facing the holy of holies, begging the Lord for mercy. And he tells them what to say. He says there, spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine reproach, uh, heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule among them. Wherefore should they say among the people, where is their God? They were to call out to the Lord and ask the Lord to turn from his vengeance of this day of the Lord. Notice there that he said, spare. Joel is saying, with this, he's saying that we understand God, that we deserve judgment, but we're pleading for your mercy to spare us from what we actually deserve. He talks about, he says, spare thy people. Again, this was to remind God that they were his people and that they were precious to him and that they, that would provide motivation for God's mercy. And finally, he tells them that they should uh, not give thine inheritance to reproach. Joel wanted to make sure that they understood that God's mercy would help bring glory to God and that the nations would, in, instead of looking down on Judah, they would look up at God. And I thought this was interesting when I, when I looked at it from my perspective and that I'm a child of God, as again, Pastor Crockett mentioned that this morning, and that we are now God's own children and that we are God's heritage. And when we sin, we risk bringing the name of God under reproach. We risk dishonouring the very name of God when we sin. Back to the example I mentioned earlier of a sportsman who goes out and, and does something silly. You know, you only have to watch the news for probably a day before you actually see this. Um, 
I suppose the, the latest one is the swimmer that's been caught for doing drugs. They will be charged by whoever the governing body is of the sport, FINA or whoever it is, with cheating. And they will be charged for bringing the sport into disrepute. You hear it all the time when someone goes out and maybe they're drunk and they go and bash someone or they go and speed or something or they go and do something really silly. As a contracted player, they bring their sport into disrepute. They bring shame to their sport and they are punished as such. And that's what happens when we sin. When we sin, we risk bringing God's name into disrepute. We give a chance for the heathen to turn around and mock God. We give a chance for others to look and say, why would I be a Christian when, when that's how you're behaving? God is not impressed with that. One of our main functions as a Christian is to bring God glory. And when we're sinning and when we're acting like Israel was, we're not bringing glory to God. We're dishonouring his name and we're bringing reproach to God's heritage. I was thinking uh, about probably 15 or so years ago, there was a, a pastor of a big American church. Um, many of you would know this story, but he was a, a pastor of a, a several thousand person church and a, a massive Bible college and all. And uh, for some reason, he let sin overcome him and he went and had an affair with a, an underage girl. Now, the church handled it very well. The diaconate got together and as soon as they heard it, they referred him to uh, the, uh, the police and the police dealt with him and he's been put in jail. And, and but this man's sin, to this day, when I googled the name of the church, one of the first articles that comes up on Google is a New York Times article on this pastor and how and what he did. And then it led on to other articles about other pastors in similar situations. And while the church had handled it well and they did right, and that pastor has brought reproach to the name of God. And some of that will never be able to be restored to some people. Now, I know that's a far example, but I could name you pastors and missionaries and parents and preachers and teachers and mums and dads who've, who've all had a godly testimony but have let sin control them and they haven't repented of that sin and they've brought reproach and shame to the name of Christ. Now's the time to repent before we let our sin bring reproach or more reproach to God because God is not happy when the heathen are mocking us and mocking him because of our sin. Joel wanted to make sure that the priests got this right and that the children of Judah or Judah could see that where they were headed was going to cause great reproach and that Joel wanted them as a nation and as individuals to turn around from this sin so they could get their hearts right with God so God could be glorified or else the heathen would say as it says there at the end of verse 13 where is their God if God had to do the day of the Lord this second major judgment all the nations round about would look at him and say, where is your God? All because of sin. But thankfully, God said that if they were to repent, things would get better. And we see that 
In my final point, God's pity in verses 18 through 27. Joel chapter 2 verse 18 through 27 says, And then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and ye will be, shall be satisfied therewith. And I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen, but I will remove far off from you the northern army and will drive him into the land barren and desolate with his face toward the east sea and his hinder part toward the uttermost sea and his stink shall come up and his ill savour shall come up because he hath done great things. Fear not, O land, ye glad and rejoice. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring. For the tree beneath her fruit, and the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad, ye children of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately, and will cause to come down for you the rain, for the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. And the floors shall be full of wheat, and the fat shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years which the locust hath eaten, the canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. And ye shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God that dwelt, dealt wondrously with you. My people shall never be ashamed. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. Having outlined the terrible state of Judah and the call to repentance, Joel turns around and gives what would happen if they repented. He starts with then. This would only happen, though, if they truly repented. If they only turned with all their heart, God would turn. But the repentance was the key to this turning. It says then that the Lord would be jealous for his land and pity his people. Um, one commentator put it this way, the word jealous there means that as a husband is je jealous for any dishonor done to the wife whom he loves, as if done to himself. The Hebrew word uh, comes from an Arabic root that means to be flushed in the face through indignation. The Lord would be jealous. The Lord would be Upset like a husband defending his wife, like a father defending his children. The Lord would be upset for his his, the children of Judah and that he would go in to bat for them and fix up the wrongs. The indignation that he had for their sin would turn to mercy and to grace for their hardship. That's the idea here, is that he would turn from, from anger at their sin to mercy to help them through. It's just more evidence of God's amazing character like we looked at last time in, chapter, in verse 13 that, that God is so merciful and gracious that it's not just that he's willing to turn away from his anger, his righteous anger, that he's willing to restore the things that he had taken away because of their sin, because of their actions against God. God's incredible character was such that he would give back to them. In the remaining verses that we just read, God goes on to outline what he would give back to them. We're not going to go into it in too much detail, but quickly going through it, all of these things are direct op opposite to what we looked at in, in chapter 1. 
in, uh, it talks about that they would have sufficient food again. That they would, uh, it says there that I will send you corn and wine and oil and ye shall be satisfied therewith. We won't go there, but in, in verse 10 of chapter 1, it talks about there was nothing left. They were craving for food and if they turned, they'd have much. It says there would no longer be a reproach to the heathen. The heathen would no longer look down at them for their sin. In verse 20, the locust plague would be sent away. The one that was causing all the devastation, that was eating all their food and trees, they would be sent away. The beasts of the field in verse uh, 22 would no longer be afraid. In verse, uh, in, back in chapter 1, the, the uh, situation was so bad that even the beasts were groaning, but even they would have no fear anymore because they would have food to eat in abundance. It goes on in verse 22 to further talk about the vines and the, the fruit trees would again provide plentifully, plentifully for, their, uh, for the nation. The rains would come back, but it wouldn't just be all flooded in one way. It would be moderate, so it didn't cause damage. It would be the good soaking rain that helped the things to grow. The wheat and the oil, wine and the oil would overflow. Their barns wouldn't be able to hold all that they had. So much so that everything that was lost, in verse 25, says everything that was lost in this great locust plague would be restored. And ultimately, God's name would be praised. Instead of, in, uh, in chapter 1, where the priest had nothing to offer, God could be praised because all the, the sacrifices and the offerings could be done because their hearts were right with God. But all this was done to show that God was in control. Verse 26 and 27, we'll read them again. It says, And ye shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God that dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be ashamed. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. This was to show that, that God was in control and that didn't matter what other gods they served, what other nations they tried to, to pull alongside, God was in control. It was God who sent the rain. It was God who provided for them. And that repentance to God would allow all this stuff to come back. It showed that they had a choice, that if they served God, he would abundant, uh, provide abundantly to them and bless them. If they served sin, they chose to serve others and the heathen gods, God would leave them desolate. Ultimately, it was serve God and you won't have the shame come to you that they were currently in. And I thought that was a good reminder for us that you know God looks after those who love and serve him. There are so many verses we could go to now, these specific promises here are to the, the children of, uh, of Zion. They, are, they, are, uh, they were for that specific time of Judah. But we are given many promises in the Bible about if we love the Lord, it says, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory. Romans 8.28 says, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. You have to love God to them who are the called according to his purpose. Matthew chapter 7 talks about uh, 
the Lord being a good God. And it says there in verse 11, If ye then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? God will look after you if you love him. If you obey his commandments and, and trust him and walk, uh, walk trying to please him and to bring him glory, he will look after you, just like he will look after Israel. But there are consequences when we sin. People want to live these days without consequences for anything, but there are the consequences. Everyone, it's different. Everyone has a different way that the Lord blesses and gives to them. We've been, been looking at Ecclesiastes with Pastor Croc and everything's different with how it comes to individuals. But God will look after us if we trust him and we love him. So that's my question for you this evening. Do you need to properly and seriously repent of something? Is there something like Israel that's holding you back? that's making your life barren, that's, that's stopping you receiving the blessings of the Lord, that's stopping uh, your life working together for good because you're not loving God. Maybe you need uh, to make a change. Maybe you're bringing reproach to God's name through the life that you're living, that you're living a selfish life or a sin-filled life and, and that the name of God is being is sullied, is being uh, brought to disrepute because of your actions. Get that right because God doesn't like being made a fool. Maybe you need to get together as a family or a, fam or a, a group of friends or as a, a husband and wife and, and repent together of something that, the Lord, that you've been doing that the Lord has been trying to get your attention. It should be our goal to bring God glory and not reproach. And I pray that's your goal in life every day. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for uh, the look at Joel again. We thank you, dear Lord, that uh, your mercy is so evident and wonderful. And the Lord, even though uh, there are many times that we let you down, you still love us and care for us, and you'll still restore us and look after us, even uh, when we sin and, uh, Lord, turn away from you. Lord, may you challenge our hearts where we need to change. And, and uh, Lord, show us if we need to repent of anything, Lord, we pray. Bless our closing in your name. Amen. Number 52 is our final hymn to God.